Our sermon text today is from the New Testament letter of 1 Peter. If you'll turn there with me in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can find this on page 953 of the Pew Bible that's there in front of you. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking at the first nine verses this morning. Uh, we're continuing and nearing an end our, of our summer series on salvation. We just have two more weeks left in this series. Uh, and today we're looking at a theme that has been personally very, very near and dear to my heart. It's helped me a lot in my Christian life. This uh, doctrine of perseverance, that God is the one who helps us endure and that he helps us endure by causing us to endure actively. And so we want to look at both of those aspects today. Let me read to you the text first and then we'll speak about it for a little bit. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God shall stand forever. Amen. In 1983, the first edition of the Australian Ultra Marathon was run between the Westfield Mall in Sydney, Australia, and the Westfield Mall in Melbourne, Australia. And just in case you don't know your Australian geography, you'll be forgiven this morning. That is a distance of 550 miles. That's why they call it an ultra marathon. And we're not talking about a car race here. This is a foot race. Crazy, huh? It took people, they, they ran this race for about 10 years, from 1983 to about 1992 or so. And it took them usually five or six days to complete the race. And most of the runners would take breaks for various necessities. You can imagine what those are, bathroom, sleep, eat. But then the rest of the time they were running. It's almost like a marathon or more a day. Can you imagine? Well, in the first edition in 1983, there was an unusual participant who entered the race. 
He was older than most of the other participants. He was 61 years old. He also was dressed different than the other participants. He did not have on the gear of a professional runner or the shoes of a professional runner. He wore a normal t-shirt, long pants, and rubber boots. Yes, rubber boots, that is farmer's boots, because Cliff Young, the 61-year-old who entered the race, was a farmer. He was a potato farmer who decided, because he had spent a lot of his time as a farmer while he was waiting on his potatoes to come right, he would spend a lot of his time in those rubber boots running around his farm for exercise to pass the time. He decided, I can take on a race like that too, and so he joined. He began to run. Everybody started to pay attention to Cliff Young because his running gait was different than anybody else. He did not have the long strides of a normal long-distance runner. He ran kind of like this, barely lifting up his rubber-booted feet off the ground, one little stride after the other, on and on and on. Here was the difference. Cliff Young did not take a break to sleep. He kept doing that for five days and some hours, And he finished first in the first Australian marathon. Can you believe it? Look up pictures, not now, but later, so I can hold your attention. But you'll see, I'm not lying to you, here's a man, a farmer in rubber boots, running a 550-mile foot race and winning. His time actually wasn't beaten for another few years by a professional runner. I mean, because he never stopped. Here's what Cliff Young teaches us. The quality of endurance, or you could also call it perseverance, is not a glamorous quality. It doesn't always look the part. It doesn't always look impressive. But when you're setting out to run a gruelingly long race, it comes in handy more than any other characteristic. Cliff Young won not because he looked good, but because he kept ongoing even when everybody else stopped for a break the apostle peter at the beginning of his letter wants to remind us we see this in these nine verses that the christian life is more like an ultra marathon than anything else it's a long race every day you got to get up and you got to run it again every day sometimes you can't even take a break you got to keep on going. God calls us to persevere. And yet, here's the blessing that Peter wants to hold out before us. And here's the gospel that I want to present to you today. It's a gospel of the gift of endurance that God gives to his beloved children. He gives us the gift of perseverance, but that gift comes with spurs and spikes. Meaning... When he gives us the gift of perseverance, it spurs us along to also keep going, using all the effort we have, just like Cliff Young, to put one foot in front of the other, even if it looks like a shuffle and not a run. In fact, if you look up about long-distance running, one more thing about that, you can still find articles and videos on how to do the Young Shuffle, named after him. And long-distance runners still today use it. They made fun of him at first, But when he won, they said, hey, there's something to this. And they started using this very low energy endurance pace. This morning, as a Christian, you've got to learn how to establish, by God's grace, your pace. Because the race is long. 
Look at your bulletin. There are three things about perseverance that Peter puts before us in this passage. And I want to show you in turn each of the three. First of all, there's the need for perseverance in verses 1 to 3. Secondly, there is the means of perseverance, the how, in verses 4 to 7. And then lastly, there is the outcome of perseverance, the reward of it, in verses 7 to 9. Let's look at it together. First of all, there is the need to persevere. We all know that we need endurance and perseverance, but do we know how much we need it? Do we know how much we need it as Christians? There are two clues in the first verse. Before you even get past the introduction of the letter, there are two clues as to why and how much we need the gift of perseverance. First of all, it's how Peter describes himself. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what do you know about Peter? I'm sure you know several things about him. He was one of the all-star disciples. He was often out front, you know, leading the way. But what happened to Peter at the moment of darkest need as Jesus was being crucified? What happened to Peter? He denied Jesus. He denied him publicly. He denied him with curses. Uh, It was so distressing to Jesus and to Peter that Peter spent the hours as Jesus died for him in a room by himself weeping. Because he had fallen so hard. And yet I want you to once again notice verse 1. How does Peter describe himself still? An apostle. This same Peter. Peter the denier of Jesus Christ. Years later is able to describe himself as Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. And the reason for that was Jesus' patience with him. Jesus met him on a beach after the resurrection. He cooked him breakfast. And he said to Peter three times, do you love me, Peter? Giving Peter a chance three times to undo his three denials. And when he did, he restored him to his place in the kingdom and to his place in the ministry of an apostle. Peter himself is an example of how much we need God's help to endure. Peter didn't endure very well on his own. In fact, he was toast on his own. And yet Jesus came and restored a fallen Christian and put him back on the path and got him back into shuffling. And so Peter knows better than most what Christians need in their daily lives. And so he he addresses these uh, folks that he's writing to. He says in verse 1, You are elect on the one hand, but on the other hand, you are exiles. And here you have a oxymoron, a paradox. They don't seem to make sense together. To be elect is to be chosen by God. He goes on to explain, we're chosen by God, the Father who knew us before the world was made, the foreknowledge of God. We're chosen in the sanctification of the Spirit as he makes us new creatures in Christ. We're chosen for obedience to Jesus and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus. I mean, just think about that. Elect. Loved by God. God's chosen people. And yet at the same time in this world, exiles. Strangers. Aliens. People who are living in a land that is not, strictly speaking, their own. Because they have a land and a country somewhere else. 
Isn't that the experience of every Christian that's ever lived on the face of this earth? Every believer? Jesus said to his disciples, don't be surprised if the world hates you. The world hated me first, and so it's going to hate you too. You're going to be strangers in the world. Even though this world is your father's world, even though it belongs to him, enemies have taken over. And you're going to find yourself in a position of trial and grief and pain very often in your life. He goes on to say in verse 6, if you look ahead a little bit, in verse 6, we are grieved by various trials. Grieved, hurt, brokenhearted by various, many different kinds of tests and trials. There is Satan. There is our own sin remaining in us. There is the world around us that hates God. There's all these reasons why you and I might, any given moment, give up and stop following Jesus. We all know people like this. Sadly, we could all name them. People who started out professing faith in Christ, but today they're no longer professing faith. They fell away. The haunting question is, could that happen to me? And if I ask that, as soon as I ask it, I feel this anxiety because I know this. If it were dependent on me, it would happen to me. Listen, if Simon Peter denied Jesus, the man that Jesus called the rock, if the rock denied Jesus, can I deny Jesus? Can you deny Jesus? We have a need to persevere. We have a need to simply put one foot in front of the other. That's what exiles do. That's what strangers and aliens in a foreign land do. They put one foot in front of the other, one day at a time, hoping in that day when they'll become citizens or hoping in that day when they'll get back home. Well, this passage is putting before us not only our need, but it's also helping us to feel the fact that if God doesn't stretch forth his hand and give a gift to help us persevere, we're bound to do just what Peter did, except we'll never get back up again. And yet Peter is confident. What you are suffering right now is not permanent. Did you notice that in verse 6? For a little while, you are grieved. Now, someone might say that's insensitive because I've suffered a long time in my life. And there are people that suffer their entire lives. And I, I get it. That doesn't feel like a little time at all. And yet, you can understand Peter's perspective here. He's thinking about the unseen things. He's thinking about the eternal things. In light of eternity, even if it's your whole life, it's a little time. It's not going to last forever. There's going to come a day when suffering will end. Strife will cease. Also, notice what he says. Your suffering is not unnecessary. Now, this one's even harder to swallow. You may think it even more insensitive for me to point it out, but it's what Peter says. You now for a little while, if necessary... 
are being grieved. In other words, the reason why you're being grieved is God has decided it was necessary for you. He does not allow anything to tempt, try, or harm his children. Unless, for some reason that we don't even know, he judges it to be a part of the work he wants to do to save us. Not one hair can fall from our head, Jesus says, without the will of the Father. If God cares about hairs, and I like to think he doesn't care as much, <laughs> but if God cares about hairs, he cares about troubles. He cares about tears. He cares about griefs. And he doesn't let anything pass his inspection unless he judges beforehand that is needed for my servant, for my child to make it to me forever. The forever will swallow up the little while. Wow. Peter says it's on purpose. He tells us there in verse 6, God means it that our faith might be tested. That's why we suffer now. The testing of your faith produces something that one day will end in glory and honor and praise. I like to think that on that day, we'll, we'll almost forget the suffering that we experience in this world. Not because of amnesia, but because the glory and the honor that will be revealed and bestowed on us will just far outweigh it. Paul says as much in his letter when he says that we are now preparing by our temporary sufferings an eternal weight of glory. An eternal weight that outweighs the little, comparatively, sufferings of this present life. What an eternal perspective. We need to persevere. And yet here is our God ruling over all things, letting no things come to us except what he knows is necessary for our salvation. A God who preserves his children. A God who keeps us as the apple of his eye. Peter is saying to these Christians, though they are exiles in a foreign land, God will see to it that you make it home. Now, I don't know this morning what expectations you came in with for the Christian life. But I hope that your expectation is not for an easy life. But I also hope that your expectation is not that you will have to get yourself through the suffering and the trouble that you face. I hope that's not your expectation, that God is a neglectful shepherd who has left you alone on the hills. He is a good shepherd who always leads us in passive righteousness for his name's sake, who always knows how to find those moments where the still waters are exactly what we need and the green pastures are where we need to lie down. Sometimes you've got to wait on him, but he will surely come. That's the need for perseverance. Let's look in the second place at the means of perseverance, which you can find in verses 4 to 7. This God who preserves his people does so by calling into action. Remember I said it's a gift with a spur. He gives us the gift of endurance and perseverance, but as soon as it comes into us, it begins to spur us on to activity. 
I'll put it a few different ways. Uh, first, let's go back to Cliff Young. Cliff Young was a farmer, and that's how he had trained to run so far because he spent his time waiting on the crops, running around the fields and the open roads of Australia. Uh, farmers know what it means to work as partners with God, don't they? Uh, by the way, other professions are this way too. Doctors, medical people, uh, teachers, right? Um, a farmer can't make anything grow. He simply helps it along. He, help, he kind of partners with God to do God's work. A doctor can't heal a single person, but he works with God's natural healing process to help people heal. A teacher, Lord knows, can't put anything into a child's head that he doesn't want to go in there. But God is the one shaping our hearts and minds, and a teacher is just there as like a midwife to help it along. Cliff Young knew this. I think this is part of the reason why he was able to endure so long because he knew the patience of simply waiting on the Lord. And that's what Peter is describing in verses four to seven. God keeps us and yet he keeps us through our faith. Look at it. We have an inheritance, it says, verse 4, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. No moths, no rust, no thieves. It's kept in heaven by God. He keeps it. It's locked in the vault of God's almighty power. And yet here we are on earth. And it says that we here on earth are being also guarded. Are you seeing this in verse 5? We are also being guarded by God's power. The reason why we're able to persevere is God and his power guards those whom he calls. He guards those whom he loves. He guards those who are his. But then notice, he guards us through faith. And the faith is not God's faith. The faith is your faith. The faith is the faith he gave you. So that you can every day get up and exercise it with all your heart. The Christian life is not like driving a Tesla. Have you ever seen people drive a Tesla around? It's sometimes a little creepy because they're driving and they're not touching the wheel uh, because it's driving itself. I was going down I-4 months ago now and I saw a person literally reading a book while the Tesla was driving itself. I had a lot of thoughts at that moment. One of them was, that'd be nice. But the other was, I don't like that. I don't like this. It seems dangerous. Christian life isn't like that. You can't just simply let go and let God. Now, I hope you hear me. I'm not saying God is not ultimately responsible for everything good that happens in your life. He is. What I'm saying is what God does for you, he does in you. He does through you often. Through the gifts and and, and abilities that he gives you by grace, he wants you to exercise it. It's not driving a Tesla, and it's not even like driving an automatic transmission. Y'all, the Christian life is, is a stick shift. It's a stick shift. Continual, moment by moment, reliance on Jesus. Continual exercise of faith. Continual gathering in of all the goodness that God has so freely bestowed on those who are in Christ. It's not let go and let God. It's 
God got me, therefore I'm going to get God. Right? That's what it is. It's he laid hold of me, therefore I'm going to do everything I can to lay hold of him. It's not self-reliance. It's not if it's going to be, it's up to me. Please get that completely out of your mind. But it is, he is working in me what I am now called to work out. You've got to be active to endure. Ask Simon Peter. That night when he betrayed Jesus, what did Jesus warn him of just hours before? Peter, you better pray. Remember that? When Jesus says, Peter, you better be praying because Satan wants to sift you. You're about to be tempted. Peter, you're going to fall. Peter, you're going to fall real hard. You better pray. Watch and pray. And then what did Peter do? You remember the story, right? He kept falling asleep. He fell asleep during his prayer time. What happened? Fell like a lead balloon. Had to have Jesus come and restore him at breakfast a few weeks later. Had to learn how to repent of those sins, which, y'all, if you're a Christian using, well, I can just repent as an excuse for sin, please don't do that. Because you know what repentance is. It's vomiting up your sin. Do you want to do that? Like consciously, I mean, I know you're going to always have to repent, but I mean, do you want to really make a conscious decision to have a little sweetness now so that you can vomit it later? Peter thought he would be okay, that he wouldn't have to pray as Jesus was urging him to do, and he fell hard. Y'all, sometimes Christians can fall, and they can fall hard, and they can hurt a lot of other people, and they can hurt themselves, and sometimes they'll never recover from some of the wounds that their sins bring upon themselves. That's true. But the truth is, God has given to every Christian the ability to every day turn back to him, to be restored and brought back into his direction so that we won't finally fall away or totally fall away. Now, do you think Simon Peter said, you know, I denied Jesus one time and he restored me, so I can do it again. He'll show up with another breakfast. No big deal. I don't need to pray anymore. Why do I need to pray? He's, God's got me. Once saved, always saved. Do you think he used that as an excuse? No, I, I think Peter became a, what well, we might say, a prayer warrior after that. day. He, he became real convinced of how much he needed to do simply what God told him to do. Using the skills that God gave him, the abilities God gave him, so that he could be preserved and continue going on. Now, Peter would fall. Peter would sin. We all do. We all fall in many ways. But here's the point. If you finally fall away, what that shows is you never were a real believer in the first place. If you're a real believer, you can fall and fall hard. But what you're going to find God do is restore you back by vomiting out your sin and getting you back on the unglamorous task of simply shuffling your way back to heaven. 
It's not glamorous, but he will do it. What am I trying to do this morning? I'm trying to wake us up to the reality that when God puts a gift in, he calls us to work it out. Perseverance is a gift, but it's also an activity that we are called to participate in. Every day there's a chance to obey God. Every day there's a chance to do simple things in faith. Every day there's a chance to repent over everything that we do that's amiss or sinful. Every day. And as you do that, you are shuffling. And you might not win the headlines. But the Bible says the outcome of that shuffling is much more glorious than any of the pain that you might experience along the way. One writer says the Christian life is a long obedience in the same direction. But let me tell you for just a few more minutes as we close, this is our third thing, of what that direction is that we're heading in. It's a long obedience in the same direction, but it, oh boy, what a direction it is. The outcome of perseverance is shown us in verses 7 to 9. And here Paul tells us there is an ultimate outcome that will come at the end when Christ returns. But then there's also little, smaller, but yet very profound blessings that occur along the journey to motivate you. That's the thing about endurance, isn't it, right? Endurance really comes down to motivation a lot of times. Have you ever started something and didn't finish it? Of course. Why didn't you finish it? You lost interest. You thought it wasn't as important or as valuable as you had been thinking at the beginning. I spent a couple of weeks at the beach uh, th with my family. It was a wonderful time of vacation. One of the things you see at the beach are people building sandcastles. Who is the most enthusiastic at first about building the sandcastle? Kids. They're like, woo, sandcastle. We're going to build this beautiful thing. Who are the first ones to give up building a sandcastle? Kids. Who is left building a sandcastle? Parents. Why is that? Because usually parents have a better, more developed maturity about benefits of activities. We can stick to things a little bit longer because we can see, hey, if I finish building the sandcastle, I can take a picture of it, put it on Instagram, and everybody's going to think I'm an awesome parent or whatever it is. There's some motivation for finishing a, t a difficult task. Well, if that's true about sandcastles and other temporal things, which, by the way, the sad thing about sandcastles is they never last. They will not last the next tide change. How much more true is it about things of eternal weight, of everlasting significance? Peter says when Jesus Christ shows up, the tested genuineness of our faith, I want you to get your eyes on this in verse 7. When Jesus shows up, the tested genuineness of your faith will be found to result in praise, glory, and honor. I want you to get the picture in your head. Jesus returns for all to see. People can no longer hate him with just cause. People can no longer talk about him being weak. He will be shown to be the king of all kings. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on that day. 
Now get this in your mind. Also with Jesus, you know what else will be shown that day? That we are his bride. Dressed in white. Dressed in white, the the righteous deeds of the saints that God has prepared for us to do, which we, though we have stumbled and fallen all over the place, like Peter, we've gotten fallen down and gotten up again, yet we've continued to shuffle, and here we are, God's people, forever made perfect, married to the Lord Jesus forever. On that day, the glory and the honor and the praise that Jesus deserves, he'll get, and it'll be shared with us. It'll wipe away and erase whatever difficulty or pain it took to get there. And so Peter says, keep going. Don't give up. You may be grieved right now for a little while if necessary, but keep going. Keep believing. Keep pressing. Because one day, glory, honor, praise. Jesus will be revealed. And we, his bride, spotless and faultless, will be revealed to to the world. Not only that, Peter says every day there's a benefit in the journey. There's something for you to taste every day. I want you to look at verse 8 and 9. It says, though you have not seen him, yet you love him. Clearly, he's talking here not about the future because when Jesus returns, we will see him. But he's talking about now where we don't see him. And yet, if we walk in him, we will grow in our love for him. Though you do not now see him, he says, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. Here it is. If I could put it in one verse, a summary of the Christian life, there it is. We are the people who love more than anything else what we do not see. We are the people who believe in the one that we don't see more than anything else. We trust him more than anybody or anything else. We are the people who have joy in what we don't see more than anything else. Now, I know that to the world watching on, that seems weird. And sometimes when our faith is more nearsighted than clear of vision, we also can feel like it's weird. I mean, think about it. This morning, we're here to talk to somebody that we can't see. We believe in a person we've never seen. Wow, that seems a little weird. To many people, it may seem dull as dirt and completely unuseful and unpractical. After all, if you can't see it, it's not real. And yet, to to think that way just simply shows either we don't have spiritual sight at all Or our spiritual sight is so dull that we can barely make out the simplest of objects and shapes. Because here's the object that that Peter puts before us. Jesus Christ, the shepherd. We don't see him, but we know he's active in our lives, therefore we love him. We don't see him, yet we hear his promise, therefore we believe in him. We don't see him, And yet we know he's given us an inheritance that is locked away in God's almighty vault in heaven and we are being kept for it. And so we rejoice with a joy we can't even put into words. We try to talk about it and we fall short. Our greatest hymns 
can't even begin to touch the hem of the garment of what God has given us. And so Peter says, keep going. Every day it's like the Israelites going out to collect more manna for the journey. When you go out to call upon the one whom you cannot see. To hear from the one you cannot see. To put your trust in him. Every day you receive more joy, more faith, more love. Your hope in that praise, glory, and honor that are to come becomes stronger. And begins to outweigh those other doubts and fears that seem to follow us around like puppy dogs. Wow. The gift of perseverance. We all need it. God gives you. Gift. And yet, make no mistake, the gift comes with spurs. Get up. Get about the business of following Jesus. You're not driving a Tesla. It's a stick shift. There's stuff you need to do to grow. There's stuff you need to do to keep going. Listen to him and do it. And know that when you do, he's there to meet you. And when you don't, he's there to pick you up. But don't let that be an excuse to not do it. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Because what God works in, he works out through us, through the very faith that he's given us.